Welcome to the High Praises Church Podcast. We hope you are blessed by today's sermon. Now, here's student pastor Evan Sastar. Hey, this story that I want to tell you, I've told our students probably like a number of times. I can't remember if I've told you. If I have, forgive me, bear with me, but I think it's a good one. Several years ago when I was in high school, my dad took me dove hunting and this was the first time that I had dove hunted as like, like an older teenager. Like I had gone as a kid and I would brought my 410 and, you know, it's real cute. But this time, like I could actually contribute. So we had a wonderful day. We killed a whole lot of doves. We got done. We kind of piled them all up. And I noticed like no one was leaving yet. Right? Everybody was just kind of like standing around, pulling their sleeves up, like acting like they were getting ready to do something. And all of a sudden, all the dudes from the field start picking up these dead birds. And I'll spare you the details exactly, but they start ripping body parts off. Let's just say that. And they began to what is called clean these doves. They're getting the breast out so that you could cook them up and eat them later. So I'm just standing back like this. And dad looks at me, he says, Evan, come on, you got to come help us. And I'm like, no, not today. Sorry about it. Had a good time. You guys take it. He said, Evan, get over here. If you killed it, you clean it. So I reluctantly get over there. And basically, you know, everybody there, they're manly men. We don't care about sanitation, so no gloves or anything. I just pick up this dead bird with my bare hand, and I just start doing what they're doing. I'm ripping it body parts, tossing it left and right. Really, I'm seeing guts. I got blood all over my hand. I'm seeing internal organs. I'm like a dove scientist at this point. I can tell you how it works. And the whole point is I'm doing all of this to get this breast out so that it can be clean. I'm touching, I'm handling all of this death, all of this nasty. I'm coming into contact with all of this death and blood and guts so that later on I could produce something, namely food, that would give life to someone else. I had to come in contact with this death so that others could have life. You know, as I think about that illustration, I realize this is exactly how our salvation works. What Jesus comes and what he does for you and me is he comes into contact with all of our sin. He comes into contact with all of our uncleanness. He comes into contact with our guilt. He comes into contact with our death so that the end result would be that you would be pronounced clean and forgiven and have everlasting life. Man, Jesus took on your sinful nature, not to be made sinful by it, but to clean it. Christ took on your guilt on the cross, not because he's guilty himself, but so that he could bury it. And Christ took on your death, not to be overcome by it, but so that he could conquer it. So today, man, you may be weighed down in your sin. Today, you may feel like your battle with sin is a losing battle, that it's just going to get you and you'll always be this way. Maybe today you feel like, the, like, like Satan is bringing up guilt. He's bringing up your past. He's bringing up what you did yesterday or this morning and saying God can never forgive. Or maybe he's weighing you down with the fear of death, the death of a loved one. Maybe you're sick in your body today. And your soul is weighed down with fear. No matter what you're going through today, I've come to tell you this. There's no part of your sin that Jesus has left untouched. 
And there's no part of you that Jesus has left unredeemed. Place your faith in him. So that's why today we are looking at Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8, what's going on is Jesus has just uh, finished preaching what's called the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5 through 7. And the story that follows up is really fitting because the Sermon on the Mount, basically the Pharisees of the day had misconstrued the law of God and basically convinced themselves they were free of sin. And Jesus takes three chapters and says, hey, the law's actually not that easy. You are all sinners. The law is a whole lot more difficult to keep than you think it is. So Jesus comes and he expands the law. And when he gets done, he comes down from the mountain and he encounters a man with the disease of leprosy. So let's read that. If, if you would stand for the reading of God's word and reverence, we're going to begin in Matthew chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. This is what it says. When he had come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. And behold, a leper came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Then Jesus put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you tell no one, but go your way, show yourself to the priests, and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Thank you so much. You can be seated. Today's sermon is not going to be too terribly different than what I usually do, but today I, um, I want to preach from this passage, but also at points I want to zoom out, and I kind of want to take a whole um, theological and biblical look at what this passage has to say. All that I mean by that is this, is I want to find out the themes, the spiritual themes this passage touches on, and then maybe zoom out and take a 30,000-foot view and say, hey, what does the whole kind of story and tenor of Scripture have to say about that? But first, this passage, if we can recap, he comes down from preaching the Sermon on the Mount. He comes down from expounding upon the law, and then this man approaches him with leprosy. Now, leprosy is a deadly, dangerous, highly contagious skin disease. It made your skin white and flaky. It, it was just, it was terrible. And so he comes up to Jesus. He's desperate. Jesus, if you're willing, the man already has faith, but Jesus, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And then I need you to pay attention to this. The man is sick. His flesh is corrupt. How does Jesus choose to heal him. Jesus doesn't step back six feet like you and I would and pronounce healing. He doesn't send him away. What's the first thing he does before he says a word? He reaches out and he touches him. And after he comes into contact with that sick flesh, he says, I am willing, be cleansed. Today, I believe that this story it's not just a story given by Matthew so that Jesus could flex about his supernatural powers. This is not just a story just to show that Jesus can heal sick bodies, though I believe that he can and he still does. But the point of this story, I believe, is to give us an image and a reflection of the depths of our sin and the way in which Jesus chooses to heal us. That we are the leper, and Jesus reaches out, and he touches us so that we may be healed. 
So first we have to ask this, how does leprosy reflect our sin? It reflects our sin in a number of ways, but here's the first way. What you need to know about leprosy, like I said before, is it's a skin disease. And so what it would do is it would get on your skin, and it would turn your skin white and flaky. It was very, very visible, and it was awful. And so it could actually spread throughout your whole body. It could you know, corrupt your whole body. It was very, very contagious, a horrible, awful skin disease. And then the long longer that it stayed there, the worse that it would get. So, for instance, you could get leprosy on your foot, and it would be, you know, disgusting and white and flaky. And then one day, you may lose feeling in your foot. And then one day, you may lose the use of your foot. And then one day, you may just lose your foot. It could just come right off. I mean, leprosy was no joke. In fact, leprosy is not a name for one disease, but actually a grouping of skin diseases, but they all had basically the same general effect. It was a corruption of the human nature, a sickness, a disease. And in the same way that leprosy was a disease on the outside, your sin is a disease on the inside. Your sin has corrupted you body and soul. There is no part of you left untouched, left unimpacted by your sin. It's affected your will so that everything's about you. It's affected your mind so that you think sinful thoughts. It's affected your desires so you desire sinful things. It's affected your tongue so you speak sinful things. It's affected your body so you do sinful things. It is a disease that has corrupted you through and through, and you are in desperate need of healing. In fact, we got this disease from our forefather, Adam. This is what's called original sin. Because Adam sinned and then brought death into the world, we have now sinned and we have death in our nature. That's why the Apostle Paul says this in Romans 5, 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and, then, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. So how does this work? Dr. Jordan Cooper says that Adam is kind of like a collective person. And all that means is this, is that it's almost like all of humanity is contained in Adam. Like how all 50 states are contained in one country, the USA. It's like all of humanity is contained in Adam. So whatever happens to his human nature happens to our human nature, to yours, to mine. And so Adam sins in the garden and then brings death into his flesh. And so now we all die because we've all sinned in Adam. We bear his corruption and his sinful nature. He has passed it down to you and I, and we are in desperate, desperate need of healing. But Jesus reaches out to the man with leprosy, and he touches him. What is the first moment of contact that Jesus has with our sinful, corrupt human nature. It's not the resurrection, it's before that. It's not even the crucifixion, it's before that. His first contact with our corrupt human nature is his incarnation. It's the moment that God chooses to become a man. Because we gotta, we got to really pay attention to this. When Jesus chooses to become a man, here's how it did not happen. Jesus wasn't sitting up in heaven and says, you know what, time to save humanity, and then from scratch fashion a brand new human nature, take it up into himself, and then just float down from heaven with angels surrounding him. 
That's not how it worked. How did Jesus become a man? He was born of the virgin Mary. He took his flesh from the same flesh that you and I share. For Mary, I mean, she was blessed above all women. But listen to me, she was still a sinner like you and me. And the righteous, holy God of the world takes his flesh from her. But then we've got a problem because we know this. Jesus wasn't corrupted by her sinful flesh. Jesus didn't become a sinner like you and me. God forbid. In fact, the Bible says that he became in every way like you and me except without sin. In fact, we know that Jesus was tempted in every way like you and me except without sin. We know that Jesus, after his baptism, he goes out in the wilderness. He's tempted by Satan just like Adam was, except he's different than Adam. He does not sin. He's out there for 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. The last time Israel did that, they worshiped a golden calf. The last time Jesus did that, he stayed pure. A man in every way like you and me, except without sin. What happened? How could he be without sin? Here is the truth. Wherever the presence of the righteous, holy, powerful God is, sin must flee. Think about this. When God manifests his presence on Mount Sinai, he says no one can even touch the mountain. Only Moses can come up. Sinful human nature can't be in my presence. Think about the temple, the place called the Holy of Holies, Only the high priest could enter into God's manifest presence one time a year after being purified. And if he wasn't purified, he would be killed on the spot by God's presence. Why? Sin can't dwell in God's presence. You remember when David's buddy reached out and he touched the Ark of the Covenant, the place of God's manifest presence. The moment that he touches it, he dies. Why? Sinful humanity can't come in contact with God's presence. So what happens? The moment that the righteous, holy God takes on my human nature, he isn't corrupted by it. No, no, no. He cleanses it. The moment he touches it, he heals it. The moment he takes it up into his person, all sin and corruption has to flee. And Jesus heals our human nature through his incarnation. And in fact, that's why Paul says in Romans 5.14, he says this, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned, according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. I want us to really focus on that. Paul says that Adam is a type of him who was to come, or Jesus. What does Paul mean when he says Jesus, or excuse me, that Adam is a type of Jesus? All he means is this, is that Jesus has come to function in much the same way that Adam has. So Adam has all of humanity in him, and he brings sin into his human nature and death into his human nature. And when we're born of him, all that's passed down to you and me. But the good news is this, is that Christ has come as the second Adam as the last Adam, as Paul calls him in 1 Corinthians. And he takes all of human nature into himself. And he takes Adam's corrupt, sick, sinful human nature, and by his presence, he heals it. 
And where there is sin, now Christ is there, there's righteousness. And where there is death, Christ is there, and there is life. And though I was born of Adam the first time and received everything he had, Christ says, be born again. And the moment that I'm born again the second time, that I'm born again by the Spirit, I cut off my bloodline from the first Adam, and I trace it back to the second one who passes down to me righteousness and life eternal. He takes on my human nature and he heals it. You know, I kind of think about it like this. Something that y'all need to know about me is I am a major hypochondriac. I um, just convinced myself I have a new life-ending disease just about every week. It's a terrible way to live. So like two worship nights ago, I had started having pain in my lower back. And so I decided that I have kidney disease and I will be dying in three months. So I went to the doctor and like my kidneys, they're, they're not working. I'm dying. And so they run all the tests and they're like, there's nothing wrong with your kidneys. Like your back just hurts. Like <laughs> here's some medicine. <laughs> so it's fine. You know, but while I was there, and they do this at every doctor's appointment, they started asking me questions, and they started asking me about my family history. So every time you go to the doctor, they always ask you, does your family have a history of X, Y, Z, a history of kidney disease, or a a history of heart disease, or a history of high blood pressure? Because they know that if your family has a history of it, you're more predisposed to it, and so they need to treat you in the right way. And then the good news that the doctor doesn't really talk about is that your family can actually pass down onto you good things. So they can pass down, you know, I don't know, good smile, attractiveness, talent, good heart health, good cholesterol. I don't know. You can receive both, both negative and positive, right? Just look at me and my brother Jaron. I mean, you know what I'm saying? I got that smile. I'm very likable, you know, talented. And he kind of got the short end of the stick. I don't He's out of town today, so I can just go in. He can't do anything. Right? But that's how it works. We receive what is passed down to us from our ancestors. And here's the truth, is that we are all born of Adam, and we receive his sin, we receive his death. But Christ took on your human nature to redeem it and heal it so that you could trace your lineage back to him and receive righteousness and life and a healed nature from Jesus Christ our Lord. And this is why us egghead nerd theologian types will fight tooth and nail for the full humanity of Jesus. We will never say he was only half human or 75% human or 99% human, and here's why. In the words of an early church father, his name's St. Gregory of Nazianzus, he says this, and if you take anything from this sermon, take this. What is not assumed is not healed. What is not assumed is not healed. Or if I could state it in the positive, what is assumed is healed. Christ took on your human nature to heal it, but if he only took on 50%, he only healed half. If he only took on 75, he only healed that. If he only took on 99%, there's still 1% of you that's sinful. But Christ is 100% God and 100% man. And there is no part of you that is left unredeemed by his incarnation. He took on your full human nature to heal your full human nature. 
So today, if you say, Evan, I just feel like I'm losing the war in my mind. My thoughts are so sinful. And all the time I'm thinking judgmental thoughts or, or angry thoughts or, or unrighteous thoughts or, 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 or prideful thoughts. Listen to me. Christ took on your mind to heal your mind so that you could put on the mind of Christ, as Paul says. Trust in him, and in time he will heal you. Man, my emotions are so corrupted, sometimes I just lose it, and I just fly off the handle, or I get apathetic, or I get lazy. Christ took on your human emotions to redeem your human emotions, and through rebirth, he can save you and deliver you. Evan, the words that I say are so sinful sometimes, so angry sometimes, or perverted sometimes. Christ took on your human language and your human mouth to redeem your language. Every part of you, he took upon himself to redeem every part of you. Trust in him. But how else does leprosy reflect our sin? Leprosy was a horrible disease and and had implications for the physical body. But leprosy also had implications for someone's relationship with God and and the community. So if you go read the Old Testament, you know that there is this whole system of of ritual and ceremonial impurity. So if you touched certain things or ate certain things or did certain things in the Old Testament, you would be declared ritually unclean. And that means that you couldn't go to the temple and be in God's presence and offer sacrifices and worship him. And then you couldn't be around God's community. You had to stay outside of the camp. Well, one of the things that made you ritually unclean, right, a a declaration of uncleanliness in the eyes of God and the community was leprosy. And unless you were miraculously healed, unless it just went away, that means you would be declared unclean for the rest of your life. You would be separated from God's presence in the temple, from the worship of him for the rest of your life because you've been declared unclean in the eyes of God. You would be separated from God's community from his people, because you have been declared unclean from the eyes of God. You'd have to live outside of the camp, live alone, live in your leprosy till the day that you died. And I believe that this concept of leprosy is reflected in our sin in this way. Sin is not just a disease, but it's also a guilt. It's it's also a criminal record before God, that when you sin, You gain a criminal record before him, and the God of all justice declares that that judgment is coming your way. You have broken God's law, rebelled against him, rebelled against the kingdom and the king, and so justice is coming your way. That you are in need of justification. That you are guilty of your sin. Paul says that we are all by nature children of wrath, God's wrath is upon us because we've rejected him, broken his law, and we are under punishment. Excuse me, under punishment. And so what does the law say about our sin? He says that our sin, because of the guilt, is deserving of death. Probably mention it every sermon. For the wages of sin is death. You have worked death into your life because you have broken the law. How in the world are we going to be redeemed? We are separated from God, a broken relationship with him, in need of reconciliation, declared to be an enemy. The Old Testament tells us, and Christ fulfills it, that the only way to receive the forgiveness of sins is if a sacrifice is made on your behalf, is if a substitute stands in your place, 
if someone else takes the righteous punishment and the death you deserve so that you could be declared forgiven and free. That's why Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. So what does Christ come to do for you and me? Christ comes to be the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. He comes to stand in your place, to identify as a guilty sinner, though he's never sinned a day in your life, to be your atoning sacrifice so that your sins could be forgiven and you could have life and reconciliation in his name forever. That's why the Apostle Paul says that he became a curse for you and me, for cursed is every man who hangs on a tree, as the scriptures say. And he who knew no sin became sin. Why? So that I might become the righteousness of God. It is a great exchange in which Christ takes on my guilt and my shame and my wrongdoing onto his record, though he's never sinned a day in his life, and he takes my punishment and stands in my place so I could receive everything that he has, adoption and reconciliation and favor with God, forgiveness of sins, righteousness forever and ever and ever. So your Savior went to the cross and was declared to be a guilty sinner and criminal by Jew and Gentile alike. In fact, they swapped out Barabbas a rebel, a murderer, and they crucified Jesus instead. That's what Jesus has done for you. And so Christ takes on all that we have, our guilt and our wrongdoing and our punishment. In exchange, he gives us all that he has, righteousness and forgiveness and life and salvation, and it's ours forever and ever and ever. You know, as I was thinking of an illustration for this, uh, it came to mind an an, an illustration from the great Protestant reformer Martin Luther. And so he kind of inspired this illustration today, but I thought that I would kind of modernize it and personalize it. So I'm stealing it from him, and then I'm making it my own. This is how this kind of works. The Bible often talks about a relationship with Jesus as a marriage, right? Jesus is the groom, and we are the bride. And so what happens in a marriage is that two people with two separate lives and two separate things and two separate backgrounds, they come together and they become one. And so then what was, this person's over here, and then this person's over here, they become one, and now everything this person has, they have, and everything this person has, they have. The two become one. I kind of think about it in my own life. When I married Elizabeth, we were two different people, and we were young, so we didn't really have a whole lot of stuff, but we had some stuff on our own. So before we got married, I had my own car, and I had, like, a few things in my bedroom. I had my own bed. I had my own bank account. I had, like, a laptop and an Xbox. That's it. I didn't have much to offer, but you know what I'm saying? Like, I had some things of my own, and she had some things of hers, right? She had a a bank account, and, you know, she had her own car and all these several things. And then the day that we got married... It became mine, and what I had became hers. So I received great things. I received money. I got a car that I drive August around in. I mean, it was great. Elizabeth received some good things from me, but she also received some not-so-good not things from me in her eyes. For instance, on my bed, I had been using the comforter, right? I'm a grown man now, that I've been using since high school. And it was ugly and brown and ripped up, and disgusting, and the moment that comforter became hers legally, she got rid of it. 
can't find them. Most recently, it was this red chair. My dad gifted me the nicest chair, this reading chair. You can prop your feet up. It is one of the most comfortable chairs I've ever sat in, but I have to admit, it's kind of ugly. And so it sat in our house for a while, but eventually the time came and she said, that thing is gone. Now, I love it too much to sit in my office up there, you know, but for you know, all intents and purposes, it's out of our house. Man, I don't know if y'all can relate, but she still does it. If I, if I don't eat snacks in time in the trash, you were never going to eat that. Yes, I was. Just tossing things out because it's hers now. Here's how it works with Jesus. When you get married to Jesus and when you put this ring on, you get everything he has. You get a good relationship with the Father. In fact, you become a son or a daughter of the Father. You have righteousness credited to you. You have life eternal And in the same way, Jesus gets everything that you have. And you bring guilt. And you bring sin. And you bring unrighteousness. And you bring death. But here's the difference. What Christ gives me, I keep forever. But the moment that Jesus came into contact with my sin, he didn't hold on to it. He got rid of it. The moment that Jesus came into contact with my sin, he took my debt and he crucified it on a cross. The moment that Jesus took my unrighteousness, he killed it on a cross. The moment that he took all the debt that I deserved, he took it and he buried it into a tomb, never to be found again. He took everything that I had and he got rid of everything that I had so that all that is left is righteousness, forgiveness, and life forever. This is the gospel. And so today, man, maybe you're struggling. Maybe Satan is arising up in your heart, and that's his name, the accuser. Maybe he's trying to accuse you today. Maybe you can feel it in your soul. He's reminding you of who you used to be. He's reminding you of how you used to live. He's bringing up all the shame of all the things you said or did or you treated people that you deeply regret now. And he's got you hanging your head low. And he's whispering in your ear, God can never forgive. He hasn't forgotten. You've gone too far. Or Christian, maybe it's not what you did 15 years ago. Maybe it's what you did yesterday. And Satan's lying to you saying, back when you were a baby Christian, he would have forgiven this. Back when you didn't know better, he would have taken care of this but you've been to too many church services, read your Bible too many times, you should have been better. This time you crossed the line. Jesus won't forgive this one. And he hangs guilt and shame in your soul. But I've come to tell you today that for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is therefore now no condemnation. For Christ has taken your guilt, taken your sin, and buried it into a tomb, never to be found again. And so the next time Satan wants to remind you of your sin and remind you of your guilt, say, Satan, I don't know what you're talking about. I got rid of that 2,000 years ago. I don't know what sins you're talking about. It was buried in a tomb 2,000 years ago. I don't know what guilt you're talking about. It was crucified on a cross 2,000 years ago. As far as I'm concerned, I'm righteous and free. Then finally, and and, and very quickly, what is the last way that leprosy reflects our sin? The sad and ultimate end of leprosy 
was death. That unless you happen to be healed from this horrible, awful disease, it would take you out, it would kill you. And the truth of sin is this, is that sin brings death. Its ultimate end is death. Because if you are sin, you are born spiritually dead, separated from God, void of his spirit. Because of his sin, unless Christ comes back, you are going to die a physical death, which your body's buried in the ground. And the sad truth is that for those who remain in their sin, those who are wicked, there is a day coming, yeah, they'll be reunited with body and soul, but they will be separated from God forever in a place called hell, what the Bible calls the second death. And this death will be permanent. It's true death. Separation from the one who is life and separation forever. Sin brings death. But just as Jesus reached out and he touched that man, Christ has not only touched your corrupted nature in his incarnation, he's not only touched your guilt in his crucifixion, but he's touched your death. He was buried in a tomb for three days. But here is the simple good news. Christ did not taste death for you so that he could be defeated by it. But Christ tasted death for you so that he could conquer it. And he's taken your human nature. He's buried it in a tomb, but then he's resurrected it three days later. So that if you are in Christ, you have new life now, and you will have resurrection life for forever when Christ comes back. And he did it for you. He tasted death for you so that he could taste resurrection for you. The Eastern Orthodox actually have a phrase that they say every single Easter. They, they kind of chant it together. They say he's trampled down death by death, giving life to those in the tomb. And Christ trampled down death by death to give life to those in the tomb, to give life to you. Your death is conquered. But today as a pastor, I'm sensitive enough to know, and I get the reports, that many of you, you are struggling with death right now. That many of you, you're grieving the loss of a loved one right now. That you're wishing you could have them back, and death stings. Man, it hurts. It's bitter. It brings tears. You feel the loss of that loved one who died in the Lord. Or maybe it's, it's in your own life right now. Maybe you've been diagnosed with something, and, and you're not really sure how it's going to go, and, and things don't seem to be getting better, and you've just got death on the mind going, you know, could this be me next? Maybe it's not you, but it's a loved one, that someone you care about, a child or a spouse or a parent, they've been diagnosed with something, and, man, you're trying to stay strong, but it's just beating in the back of your head. They won't be here forever. Maybe you just do like I do sometimes, and just the reality of death just scares you. And it's been weighing on your soul. Today, I, I did not come to tell you that death isn't real. Neither did I come to tell you that death doesn't hurt. And say that when you become a Christian, it just doesn't matter anymore. But here's what I do know. Is that for us Christians in the, word, in, in, in the room, death no longer has the last word. Death no longer gets the last laugh. For Christ took upon your death. And he conquered it in his resurrection. So as one of the songs we sing here, the author is Cody Carnes. He says, death 
is just the doorway into everlasting life. So today, I may not be able to take the tears away. I may not be able to stop the grieving. But as Paul says, we do grieve differently than the world. For while death brings pain now, Christ has the last word. Thanks for listening. Be sure to join us Sunday mornings in person or online at 10 a.m. For more information or to watch our services online, please visit us at www.highpraises.org or check us out on social media.